For years, since 2006, when I was in the house, people said, let's buy Perry County and use it for a prison. My vision coming in was, why would we want to use it for a prison? What if we used it for a rehabilitation center? Those who are already on parole, if they're high risk of going back to prison, why don't we use this as a means of providing them the therapy and maybe the job training they need so they don't go back to prison again? I think that's where my my vision, my ideas come into play and where it's outside of the box. Uh, when I talked about this in Mississippi, they were like, well, we wouldn't thought about that over here. But it's, it's not that complicated. It's just being willing to have that vision, which is a little bit outside the box to help reduce recidivism. Welcome in, boys and girls, to another fine episode. Actually, this one's going to be the best episode of Alabama politics this week that you've ever heard. Um, I'm confident in that this week. Uh, we've got a good guest. We've, yeah. got, uh, we've got good topics. Uh, we're, going to lead, we're going to lead with me, so we know that that's going to be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> by, by the way, I, I am Josh Moon, and the person you hear laughing at, at the idea that we're going to be good because we're leading with me is... <laughs> David person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I just yeah. your your uh, you know your uh, unabashed uh, enthusiasm about yourself just tells <laughs> me that's, that's yeah, listen. All. If there's anything that I love, it's me. Okay. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, all right. So we no, we, we do. We had a good show. Cam Ward's going to join us, the director of uh, pardons and paroles uh, for the state, and. Um, uh, and talk about our, our prison issue and, and specifically our uh, pardons and paroles issues. Um, and so we'll, that should be a good conversation. But uh, but we will lead off first. Uh, I wrote a column. And, and listen, I gave David many options, okay? They all started with me, but I gave him many <laughs> options of things in my life that we could discuss. Uh, no, but I wrote a column uh, this, this week about uh, the Andy Griffith Show uh, because I watched a segment on the CBS Sunday morning show with Ted Koppel. And he had gone to Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is the inspiration for Mayberry on the show, the Andy Griffith show. And, um, you know, people still go to this town by the thousands, hundreds of thousands every year, um, to get some little piece of Mayberry that they, yeah, and, and you know, this fictional the show had been on in fifty three years. Uh, it was canceled fifty three years ago, and and for the most part, nobody watched the color episodes anyway. So you know, it was uh, uh, really been, been off the air much longer than that, as far as a lot of people are concerned. And um, it's a um, it's a great show. I am a huge fan of the Andy Griffith Show, but I believe that the show, and I think that the segment with Ted Koppel showed that it has been kind of co-opted by these people, white people who, who want, who had this idea that there was once this America that existed out there 
in which everything was nearly perfect and it's in the 50s and 60s and um and you know that things were great and and everybody loved each other and you could leave your doors open at night and none of this actually existed for the most part i mean there there are some places where you could leave your doors open uh you know or unlocked and not have to worry about it all that much but if you go back and actually look crime rates per capita were higher then than they are now i know that's hard to believe for a lot of people but they were uh and so you have the, but you have this idea from the show that that's the way America was, and it was just a TV show, and you know it was just this means of people uh, of a, of a story that and and the reason I like it, and I said it in the column, the reason that I like it was because it it provides you know good clean humor, and it's, a lot of it is really really funny and relatable uh, for for people who live in the South and. Um, and it's also, uh, there, there are good lessons in there that, you know, you, you gotta kind of pay attention to, uh, some and some that have flown right over the heads of the people who apparently love the show the most or, or claim to. And, you know, to me, what the Andy Griffith show kind of laid out for you is if you treat people with, with kindness and respect and you care for the less fortunate, you don't you know, you don't treat the drunk any worse than you treat anybody else. Uh, you don't, uh, you know, the sheriff doesn't need a, a gun or a uniform to get have respect. Um, you know, a, a military outfit's not going to automatically earn you respect and shouldn't. Uh, you're still going to be the same man underneath it. And so you got to change yourself, you know, as, they, as we learned from Ernest T. Bass. Um, and, and so... Those are the things that have apparently been lost to me or lost from the show to on this population of people that want to believe that this is some kind of white utopia out there uh, that they'll never achieve again. And they use it in a lot of cases to justify their feelings of racism and bias and bigotry towards people that they believe stole that America from them. And so that's kind of what I wrote about. Right. So... <clears throat> you know, when I read the column, I thought it was uh, uh, really fascinating. First of all, I, too, grew up watching Andy Griffith, even though I grew up in Chicago. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. it was one of my, uh, the Andy Griffith show and the Dick Van Dyke show, to me, are still two of the most well-written, well-executed television shows in the history of television for a lot of the reasons that you talked about and then for some artistic reasons. But nonetheless, um, yeah. My two I, favorite were The Andy Griffith Show and The Jeffersons, by the way. The so, Jeffersons? Okay. Yeah, I, well, I The Jeffersons was, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was, uh, my feelings about The Jeffersons are a little bit more complicated, but we'll save that for another, <laughs> we'll save that for another conversation. This is the TV review show, man. I don't know what you're doing. I, I mean, yeah. it's a, I mean, I, to me, Sherman Helmsley is, uh, or George Jefferson, spot on Joe Reed. Spot on Joe Reed. It's a, they're, they're the same person. But, you know, go ahead. Sorry. Well, okay. So I, you know, I, I think that the Jeffersons was a mix of uh, extreme caricature uh, to the point almost of being racist. And, uh, and then also there was a little bit of reality mixed in there. Norman Lear was brilliant at dealing with social issues, I think. Uh -huh. And he did that well with that show as he did with all in the family and so forth. But George Jefferson, I don't know one person. And I grew up black in America around 
mostly nothing but black people. Well, right. I actually grew up around nothing but black people. And I didn't know one George Jefferson-like person, not one. That's yeah. not to say that, you know, I mean, stereotypes are based on, you know, a smidgen I mean, what, of what, what What makes you say that? I mean, what, what's, what's the over-the-top attribute there for George that you don't, that well, you, you feel like wasn't, wasn't true? The, uh, I'd say it starts with uh, the exaggerated mannerisms, okay? I just I didn't know, grow man. I, You know, I, I didn't I'm, see that. I didn't I'm, see I'm, that. I'm telling you, man, I, that, that, if, if I could show you some old video of Joe Reed in, in his prime, uh-huh. I'm telling you, I, I, it is, uh, it, some of that stuff is exactly the same way. I mean, he, the, way, the way he carried himself with the confidence that he carried himself with and stuff, it wasn't quite the same exaggerations and stuff, but uh-huh. it was, I mean, that you could, when he walked into a room uh, in a lot of cases, and he 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 carried himself in in that way that I'm you know I'm here and this is where I belong to yeah. be you know sort of thing and and to me it was less of a uh, uh, you know machismo or you know whatever but, uh, and more um, I'm going this is where I belong and I'm not going to be ashamed of it sort of thing you're not gonna you're not gonna put me in my place or some other place this is my place this is my place. You know, sort of thing. But well, sorry. that's why. Well, that's why I say my feelings are complicated because I do think that there's with George Jefferson, you definitely have uh, this interesting mix of, uh, you know, black man who's done well, who's an entrepreneur, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then you've also got this again, this sort of okay, so. Black people, this is this is getting way off base, but it's okay. No, no, and listen, it's our show. We can do whatever the hell we want to do. Yeah, it's that's our true. show. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So in, in black culture, there's without question, there is a certain sort of style sensibility, right? And uh, in fact, we call it today swag. There's a certain kind of swag, especially with black men. And I think it's it's probably even uh, more pronounced in certain situations or certain environments. If you grow up in the inner city, for example, if you want to, as I did in Chicago, if you want to survive as a young person, mm-hmm. you you know you better have a little bit of swag. You know, sure. you better have a little bit of swag. So you know, George Jefferson had an exaggerated amount of swag. And, and, you know, we could argue, okay, it was for a comedic effect, you know, sure, which yeah, yeah. I can accept that argument. But I also know that for many people who are not familiar with the black community, and I, I'm not talking about you because I know you are, but for a lot of people who are not familiar with the black community, they will take some of those little uh, exaggerations and they will project that on to everybody. So that's if if you're a black man and you're not acting like George Jefferson, well, you're not, you know, you know, you're not really a black. This is how all black men are. That's the expectation, you know, as opposed to understanding that, you know, and we didn't really um, this wasn't this really didn't come into pop culture, probably, at least in any real way. Uh, until probably Urkel, the Urkel character on Family Matters. But there have always been black so-called nerds or geeks or whatever the term de jour is. I mean, that's always existed. 
you know. Um, but uh, and there have always been, you know, people who were uh, sort of like, um, if you want to go even further into black pop culture, let's go to the Will Smith show. Uh, what was that called? The Fresh Prince. The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You, know, you know, that to me was a, a more it was more effective in examining the the range of personality and style types that you find in the black community, but not so exaggerated that it could end up being demeaning. So that's that's my little two cents on that. But getting back to getting back to Mayberry, um, I think you made some really excellent points about. Um, I'll go on <laughs> about. Tell me you know, more about this. Yes, I like this. I like where we're headed. About the the, the way that uh, there's been this sort of, uh, I guess, use of a fictionalized setting to revise history. You know, and and I think you really made some excellent points when you talked about the idea that apparently unbeknownst to the people that have now sort of idealized the fictional Mayberry as what America used to be, they missed the fact that Andy Griffith carried a weapon. He only used a weapon when it was absolutely necessary, absolutely a last resort, and then he would have to go to the shotguns, generally speaking, where all those shotguns were to get a weapon. But mm-hmm. he walked around town weapon free. Mm-hmm. You know. Um and he, actually said on the on the show that uh that you, you find when you carry a gun, a lot of times the respect that you think you've earned is actually fear. And I don't want people to fear me. Uh and, and that's you know, I it that's I mean a hundred percent, you know, I, if you could teach that to to police departments around the country today and get them to give up that military gear that they've got because they believe that it, they're projecting this image that, that they find uh, that people find fearful uh, or are or, or feel fearful of. I think that it changes everything for, for the better, but you know, again, that's just Andy Griffith that they love. Right. Right. And, and then the whole approach to criminal justice, which, as you pointed out, was, is very, in that fictionalized show, was very dramatically different than what we espouse today, which is what you just talked about. Of course, I know the pushback is going to be, well, you know, this is no, you know, uh, Chicago's no Mayberry or some other place is no Mayberry. And while that may be true, I think your larger point is that the reality is no place was Mayberry. No, that was no a television was, show. No place was Mayberry, and every place, if you treated people with that sort of dignity and respect along the way, you would be a hell of a lot closer to every place being like Mayberry mm-hmm. than you than you ever had been before. Because that's that's what you want. Now, I mean, of course, it all helps that that everybody's white, and you know, and well, he's just a down on his luck guy, you know, and not right. uh, a deranged animal, you know, out there, and right. so. You know, you you don't get into that sort of thing, right? And that's and that is another interesting point. The idea that in in the so called you know in the in the fictional Mayberry, even the uh, even the worst characters 
were given some consideration, were treated as human beings, and were given the benefit of the doubt. And we know, we know, based on everything that we have seen in real life, that, you know, people of color in their encounters with the police and in their encounters with vigilantes like George Zimmerman are not given the benefit of the doubt. You know, the, the worst is assumed of them, of us. And again, that goes back to uh, looping back around, Josh, that goes back to this idea of um, how media depictions of us, you know, can be, they are a reflection, I think, of the bigotry that is embedded in white culture. But they're also, but they also sort of become a feedback loop, you know, so you know, it's uh, it's the bigotry, it's the bigotry of the writers and the producers, which is derived from the culture. But then it's also, you know, uh, transmitted back out into the culture and reinforced, you know, and it just becomes this thing where black people and other people of color and for that matter, gays and and women you know, we get trapped in this feedback loop of stereotypes and bigotry that just feeds on itself. Mm-hmm. You know? And I would also argue the same thing is true when it comes to the depiction of Southern people. The same thing, and, and that includes Southern whites. The same thing happens in the mainstream media where stereotypical depictions of Southern whites, you know, based on the stereotypes of these writers, East Coast and West Coast writers, Mm-hmm. You know, is transmitted into the culture and becomes a a stereotype, a feedback loop of of bigotry and and stereotypes, so that when people coming, um, when people encounter, when people from the Midwest, like I, where I'm from, or from the North, or from the West Coast, encounter somebody with a, a Southern accent, they assume, oh, they must be dumb, they must be slow, they. You know, they must be married to their 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 cousin. You yeah. know, so, well, you know, I mean, foolishness. I, yeah, yeah, but you know, all right. So, so I, I have complicated feelings on this because listen, I, you okay. know, I, I love I love New York City. Love spending time there. Uh, no place in the world are Southerners you know uh, look down upon more so than in New York City, uh, but. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you got every every sort of uh, of language spoken there. You've got every sort of uh, you know uh, accent and everything else in New York. And as soon as a Southerner opens their mouth, they're like, "Whoa!" You know, it's just and, and I but but I get it. You know, we we've earned a lot of that shit. Okay, we we have we've earned a lot of that. Um, and and to be fair, you know, Jeff Foxworthy had that bit a while back about you know uh, the the whenever you hear the uh, the the southern accent, you automatically take away at least ten to fifteen IQ points. And he's like, you know, and if you don't believe me, uh, let your surgeon come in and start with, all right. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna saw the top, you know. And, and of course, you're like, whoa, I need another one. All right, I need to get me another surgeon. And it's and it's just we we've done. You can't vote for Tommy Tuberville over Doug Jones. You can't pass the most restrictive abortion law in the nation. You can't vote so close for Roy Moore. 
over Doug Jones. You can't do those things. You can't um, have these problems and these issues and this racism and this and these uh, the sort of stuff that happens here by majority decision in a lot of cases so often and not deserve that sort of reputation outside of the borders of this state. And so, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, and you're right for, for people like us who are above these rednecks. Um, we, you know, you know, but uh, I mean, I, I know it's not what you're saying, but I mean, but, yeah. but for real, you know, for people like us, it is, we, we are unfairly judged in a lot of ways when we, when we travel to other places, but we, we've, you know, uh, we kind of have to understand when you say you're from Alabama, people have this idea of what Alabama is based on what the majority of Alabamians have presented to those people. I think, I think that is a factor. I think that is a factor, but what I'm really talking about is uh, that automatic assumption of when I hear that accent, right? Or when I or when I learn where you're from, I automatically assume, you know, these stereotypical things. I think that's a problem, and I think it's as much as it's it's as much of a problem in terms of us being a healthy society as it is for somebody to make a, an automatic assumption about somebody because they're black or because they're gay or because or because she's a woman that that's just you know again these knee jerk reactions you know this sort of knee jerk bigotry i think is is problematic i get what you're saying and i do think that there is uh there certainly is i think an understandable scrutiny of the South. Right. Because not only because of the political values that 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 we have here, or even some of the social cultural values. But also I think the the reality is that um I think some of the obsession with uh you know, with the past doesn't help us in terms of what you were talking about earlier. You know, this fixation with the, you know, we're, 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 it's still obvious that in certain sections or certain pockets of the South and certainly of our state, people are still litigating the Civil War, you know, and, and still refusing to move past that, you know, in the name, they say in the name of Southern heritage, but I think for many, it's it's not just that. For some, it may be. I don't, uh, you know, I I can. Uh, what but even I think is for that? Some it's deeper than that. I mean, what what even is that? What what is what is Southern heritage to somebody today? I mean, you know what I mean. What I've never had anybody really define what, when they say that about it was my heritage. You know, I mean, what 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 does that mean to you? I mean, what does that you know? I mean, what does that how how does that define and shape you today? Uh, in in any way, shape, or form, and and what are we doing with that? You know what what why does it why does that matter to you more so than what's being uh, what's affecting other people who live with you? Why why does you know what is that? And, and I've never really had anybody define Southern heritage to me. I think I think at its roots, what it's really about is. Uh, the things that people don't want to talk about. And I don't know if they, I don't even know if they intellectually process it uh, to this extent. But, but when you're talking about the South, you know, the, in, the, in, the most, in the most, I think, dramatic context, what we're really talking about is the Confederacy 
and all and the right to live as you want in that context. But people don't really process it that way. They they gloss it over with a lot of nostalgia and with family stuff and ancestry and all of that. But if you drill down to the to the root, I think that's what it is. They just they haven't drilled down that far or they're afraid to drill down that far. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with them being unable to define it. And I think it also has a lot to do with what, what I wrote about with the Andy Griffith show and, and them, uh, you know, this idolization of this fictional, all, almost all white town where, you know, nothing bad ever happens. And, and it's a kind of a white utopia there. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the heritage that they, they, I think that they seem to have co-opted from a show that was never a reality in, in the world uh, that they lived in. Um, and, you know. But before we run out of time, can, can we talk a little bit about uh, that, that great uh, phrase that you coined or, ter- or term that you coined, um, Southern isolationism? I, and I'm saying you coined it. I've never seen it anywhere. I, I mean, I just off the top of my head, you know, but no, it really off the was. Dome. I mean, off the dome. Off the dome. Was off the dome. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, we, we got, we've got Cam waiting. Uh, okay. Let's, let's do, let's get Cam and then we'll come back uh, after, after we talk to Cam for a few minutes, we, we can talk about it if you want to. And then, yeah, I think uh, we should. Day. I think it's okay. a, I think it's a term that needs to be introduced into our, uh, into our political discourse. All right. Well, let's do that. Let's let's switch over. Uh, talk talk to Cam Ward for a few minutes about a really important topic in pardons and paroles and the prison issue, uh, and then we'll we'll get back to this and uh, and, and and talk some more TV. Because listen, I love talking about TV. <laughs> uh, all right. Back in a minute. Alabama politics this week. The power brokers that determine who gets the shiny campaign set up and who doesn't. Um, is kind of an old boys club and we didn't want to have to turn those clients away because they couldn't afford the big consultant minimums to hire a pricey consulting firm. So we created Turn It Blue Digital to give down ballot candidates an option um, and give them a way to look like they know what they're doing, even if they don't always feel like they do. Well, uh, talk about uh, some of the options. Like, uh, give, give people an example of, of what you could do. If, if they wanted to run for, you know, the county commission or they wanted to run for, for you know, a state house seat. Right. So the first thing we would do is um, get them started with a launch kit. So this is everything a candidate needs to look um, professional online to have everything set up and running smoothly. Um, one of my other favorite projects we've been working on, we just rebuilt this platform from the ground up, um, is a ad buying platform. So you can go in in 15 minutes for $500 and run your own display ads, run your own video ads, um, and even run your connected TV. Um, so your Peacock, your Hulu, that kind of stuff. How do people get in touch with you? How do, how do they find out what you're all about and, and see the pricing and get signed up? Yep, so we are at turnitbluedigital.com. Um, you can tweet me, Clayton 5 um, You can email me, Beth, at turnitbluedigital.com. Um, but turnitbluedigital.com is the best way to, to submit that inquiry form and get started. All righty. Welcome back, Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person, and we are happy now. I, I'm very happy because he's, 
uh, was always one of my favorite lawmakers uh, to deal with because he cared and he wasn't crazy. And that's a rarity in Alabama politics. Uh, and it is Cam Ward, uh, who, unfortunately for me and for the rest of us, left the legislature. Uh, to, but fortunately for us, he's now the director of pardons and paroles for the state and uh, and is trying to to make some positive changes there in an area that God knows we definitely need some good positive changes in and in our correction systems uh, throughout the state and uh, has been heavily involved. Cam, welcome in. We really appreciate you taking some time with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I always enjoy the conversation. I guess, you know, I've written a lot about it. We've talked a lot about it. We've had Chris England on uh, on the show and some others. Um, and we've talked about the problems with with pardons and paroles specifically uh, and with, with paroles and uh, being granted and, and the issues that have come there. I, I guess kind of explain, first of all, the separation uh, what you know your job and, and what authority you have over the board, if any or none, uh, and, and what role you you kind of play there. Mm -hmm. So, as the director of the Bureau of Pardon Parole, what I do is I send over a certain number of names to be considered every week, roughly about ninety to ninety-five a week, which is a, about a thirty forty percent increase from before. But then the board takes those names and deliberates by themselves. And then they basically send it back and say, and this is what we decided. The statute, the, the biggest part of my job in the statute is to oversee the roughly 44,000 people on probation and parole in Alabama. How do you service them? What do you do to make sure they're getting the proper treatment they need? And I think it's been neglected, by the way. But as far as the board goes, I basically send them the names that I think should be eligible, and then they vote, and I get a list at the, the end of the week as to who was who was granted, who was denied. So it's a, it's honestly, it's kind of a clunky system. <laughs> and and it has performed as such, right? And I'm one of the people that made it clunky, by the way, when I was a lawmaker. So I I am not to blame for that. I can I can cast stones, but I was part of the body over the years that made it clunky. So it's right. part of it's it's kind of a devil's at it's kind of a uh, karma. Isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, well, hey, I was going to ask you. I mean, I've heard you say this before, and so when you when you say that, what what do you mean that that you you made it, uh, you know, kind of clunky? And then what do you mean? What what do you think could happen to make it less clunky? Well, so we're our state's a little different in that um, we're one of the few states where the Bureau of Pardon and Parole and Department of Corrections are separate. I spoke to the mm -hmm. Mississippi Legislature. Uh, two weeks ago, I was over in Jackson speaking to them, and they're having some of the same problems we are. But they're, they're, they're DOC and pardonable the same. I'm not saying that's the way we should do it here. I'm just saying we have a system that is, basically depends on our success, or at least harmony depends on a personality who's the director of the bureau and the board being able to personally get along because I don't answer to the board. I don't work for the board, but they don't work for me. We're almost two separate entities, although we do provide them services such as caseload management stuff. So it's, there's got to be a better way to do it. But I say part of the fault being mine was, you know, I was in the legislature for close to 20 years. And I guarantee you, someone who's studious, and Josh, you may have already done it, you go back through and go, look at this bill. And I guarantee you, they'll go, oh, Cam Ward sponsored or co-sponsored. Yeah, so it's, being at it from the, it's, being, it's coming at it from the other side. There's ways to make it run better. Um, and, and at the same time, I think we as a state really need to start, how do you zero in on what should be what determines parole and what doesn't? 
And I know there's all kinds of circumstances, but I think the reason you have risk assessment standards out there is what is the risk this person poses to public safety going forward? And that's, we've got to figure out a way to better integrate that into the decision-making process. Go ahead. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I, you know, Cam, I, uh, first of all, let me just say, I, um, I really appreciated when you were in the legislature, I appreciated the, uh, hopefully you won't take offense at this word, but it's appeared to me to be a transformation uh, with you as it related to prison reform. I don't remember you being, uh, during the entirety of your tenure, I don't remember you being the outspoken advocate of prison reform that you became. Uh, Oh, okay, you're agreeing with me on that. Oh, no, no, I agree with you. Actually, David, that's a good point. Everybody asks me this all the time. They go, when did, how did you get into this? And I will tell you what, I'll tell you what it happened, believe it or not. So I was in the House for eight years, David, served two terms, and I was in the minority. And, and you know, back then, I, was in the, I served in the super minority in the House and then the super majority in the Senate. When I first got involved was when I was sworn in in 2010, I became judiciary chairman but I also served on appropriations, healthcare. So I saw a lot of different angles and I'll never forget what got me started. It was actually in 2010 when I saw my first tour was at St. Clair prison. And I saw how I was like, man, this is terrible. This is ter- surely there's gotta be a better way of doing it than this. So that's what got me started. And then one day I said, we well, you know I toured that prison. Let's tour another one. Let's tour another one. I've been to every prison in Alabama today. Yeah. Um, some of them, like St. Clair, like seven times. Uh, Perry County yesterday, 11 times. Uh, Holman, three or four times. But I've been to every prison at least once. And I think that's what kind of got me into this. But no, for I mean, I didn't grow up saying, I want to fix the prisons. It literally was something that was kind of an aha moment. And it came about when I moved to the majority in the Senate and took over judiciary. It just caught my interest. Okay. Well, that, again, I applaud that transformation and and what you began doing in the legislature to try to truly, I think, bring uh, a sense of, of, of real justice to the, uh, to the process. And, and doing it, I think it was a surprise, honestly, if I'm going to be, you know, keep it real, as we say these days, the fact that you were a conservative Republican doing it, I think, was a surprise to many of us. But nonetheless, we're really glad to see you do it. So I want to ask you, what do you think, as you look at your current role, uh, are you bringing a sense of reform to that as well? Yes. Um, and I'll tell you why. A couple things. So this agency goes from being a law enforcement agency, where what we do is, you know, we, are, we have 800 employees and three-fourths are law enforcement officers. And that's great. They do a great job, and I don't want to neglect that. But we either go from being all law enforcement to all just worried about who's getting released, and I think we're missing our mission. Alabama has roughly a 30% recidivism rate. What do we do? We have roughly 44,000 people on parole or probation. What are we doing to make sure that population does not go back to prison again? And I think what we've missed all these years is, why aren't we providing more drug rehabilitation, more substance abuse rehabilitation? Why aren't we providing more mental health rehabilitation? Why are we not offering job training programs? That's where I think my role comes in, and that's my vision. And that's why in this upcoming special session, you'll see this idea. For years, since 2006, when I was in the House, people have said, let's buy Perry County and use it for a prison. 
my vision coming in was, why would we need it for prison? What if we used it for a rehabilitation center? Those who are already on parole, they're high risk of going back to prison. Why don't we use this as a means of providing them the therapy and maybe the job training they need so they don't go back to prison again? I think that's where my my vision, my ideas come into play and where it's outside of the box. Uh, when I talked about this in Mississippi, they were like, well, we wouldn't thought about that over here. But it's it's not that complicated. It's just being willing to have that vision, which is a little bit outside the box to help reduce recidivism. So to answer your question. Oh, no. Go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That absolutely answers my question. So as a follow up, Cam, you know, and again, I that's a vision that I fully embrace and applaud. But I have to ask you, as you look to implement it, how effective do you think you will be when a lot of the problem, it seems to me, at least from what I've read and from what I've just observed, is that the time that people are in prison, you know, it's when they are actually incarcerated that you have the best shot at providing them yeah. with the resources that they need, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, drug uh, rehabilitation, GED education, and and job training and preparation. That really seems to be the time to do it. It seems like by the time they fall yeah. under your purview, it's it, it may be too late. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, you know, here's what I have what's in my, what I quote, my legal jurisdiction that I can work on. But then I hope, I hope that my time in the legislature did develop good relationships with people uh, that are outside of my legal jurisdiction. You know, I have jurisdiction on this crowd. I mean, if I go out and say, let's start doing this in, in prisons, they're going to say, hey, you're outside your lane. But I hope that maybe the relationships I'm building and have built over the years with people at corrections uh, and not just corrections, but pre-trial diversion before you even get to corrections. I'm hoping that has helped me do some of the, what I call the, maybe the diplomatic front on, I know this in my area, but what can we do through an MOU, a memorandum of understanding between us and corrections, us and the two-year colleges to provide this programming. And I, I've advocated, I'll be honest, I've advocated this a lot with a lot of legislators and I've advocated with members of the administration of, you know, right now, I don't have to pass a new law to get job training programs for someone who's on parole or someone, you know, who needs, you can do that through my agency and your agency saying, I agree, we're just going to break down the rules and do it together. How many times can we do that without having to wait 10 years to pass a law to do it? And I'm not negating, I don't want anybody to think, well, he's just trying to make laws bypassing the legislature. There's a lot of things we can do now to provide services and, and not wait through that process. And I think that's, I hope, hopefully that's a skill set I think maybe I can bring to the process that increases whether it be in prisons or pretrial, we can do it that way. Right. You know, I, I, what's always been frustrating to me is that we, we have this idea that the legislature has to do everything. Uh, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, you know, you, you have a job and you're supposed to be able to do the job well. Uh, you know, and uh, and to you know to do these sorts of things like you're talking about, it it shouldn't require all the time the legislature passing the law to do every little thing. Uh, and I think that not only is that is that uh, okay, it's the way it should be. But you know, I, I wanted to ask too, it, looking at this special session that's that's coming, um, because I think this is if we're going to get this done and and then we're going to pass this prison bill, we're not going to do anything else for a long time. 
Um, and so we, there are a number of reform bills. There are a number of, of, mm. of other bills that are, that are out there uh, related to prisons, uh, criminal justice reform, um, all sorts of pardons and paroles reform. I, you know, I know that there, there are a couple of bills there that are talking about uh, following the, the stat sheets uh, there at, more closely in, in terms of determining paroles. Uh, but what do you think needs to happen in this special session here? I mean, if, if you, if you, the, uh, you know, pie is the sky sort of, you know, sort of thing, you, you can get anything. Uh, what, what do you think would happen? Well, I, I want, there's two reform bills they put up and then there's a construction bill. I like construction. And, and this goes back to a view I had in the legislature, although my role's different now. I will say this. I think you've got to have some sort of construction, not, not the programming. The capacity is really not going up under these bills. I think you're going from like 13,400 to like 14,000. You're not really increasing your capacity. I know that's a fear of those who oppose new construction. The whole, you build it, they will come. You'll just overflood the system like we did in the 80s. But right. I hope we get the two reform bills, the construction, but I think it would be a huge mistake to say we passed this and now prisons are okay. That is not the case. And I don't think, and the governor recently even said the same thing. It's not the case. There are other reforms, both pretrial, both incarceration, and both post-incarceration that we have to make if we're going to make this ship go get straight the right way. One bill or two bills, I think the construction's great. I think the two reform bills are great. But by itself, you cannot stop there. You get There's several other things you've got to do down the road to make this work. And I just hope that we can keep lawmakers and others in the public focused on that fact. Have you... Are I, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this, but you know, uh, when we talk about the the parole board, oftentimes uh, with Lee Wachney and stuff, and and I know you're separate from that, but uh, you send the names over uh, every week. Uh, have you have you been frustrated with him? Um, it gets frustrating sometimes. I, I'm also yes, it gets frustrating, but I'm also very cognizant of it because a lot of times I will catch myself doing this because as a lawmaker. You can get any. I can get into Medicaid. I can get into healthcare. I can get into education or prisons or paroles. I've also been cognizant of, hey Cam, stick to your job. You've got 800 employees. Make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't go out there and start, you know, getting to every other. We have a couple of elected officials. I will not call names that love to get out and stuff because they don't have enough to do on their current job. They want to go out and get everybody else's stuff. And it just, uh, we're going to need you to name names. We're going to need <laughs> you to name names. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to name some, some people who have no nothing else to do these days. But I will say for me, uh, yeah, that there's a sense of frustration. But Josh, I, and just to be brutally honest, I'm very careful in that if asked in private, I do sit down and say, this is a change I would consider making, or this is something I would consider doing differently. Um, but I'm also very cognizant of, don't go out and start getting in every single political food fight in this town, because if you're going to try to do your job correctly, that's not helping you do your job correctly. And it's only going to be a detriment to the work we're trying to do. So yeah, I, I have some frustrations, but I'm also, I mean, I'm just being straight up. I'm very careful about it. I, I want to make sure that what I'm doing is what's going to help my mission and not just going out and get involved in every other political food fight in this town. Back out of here. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh, go ahead. Well, I was just, the, only th the only other thing I was going to ask about that is, is what, what do you think, what do you think the, the problem is? is? Is there, is there a philosophy there that, uh, or, or a principle that, that that board is using 
um, that that is that is wrong? I mean, are they? What do you think the problem is with, with them granting paroles? Was it was it just that that whole big change that that happened a few years ago? Um, yeah, yeah. So we've been like I said, it's a pendulum agency. It's funny, and, and the legislature's this way. You know, you get um, two hundred cases, and you get two or three bad cases that were released. All of a sudden, everybody rushes this way. Yeah. And then if there's something that happens over here on this side, and it's two or three out of 200, everybody rushes this way. And, and Josh, I mean, I can, I, I can pick with you guys a little bit on this, but like even in the media, you get one corrupt power, get, get three, three corrupt legislators out of 140. Uh, they're all crooks, send them all to jail. <laughs> it, it's, it's that kind of mentality that, that <laughs> politics just follows yeah. these days. It's, it's either everybody wants a zero sum game and yep. it's either they're all crooks or they're all saints, or those are my saints because they're my people. Those people are all crooks because they're all right. and, and so I think that's part of the problem. But I think there's also a criminal justice philosophical issue, and that is that there's this tendency to want to retry the crime again. Hmm. Well, you know, I want to retry the case because they did this crime, therefore they should stay in forever but it doesn't look at what happened after they committed the crime and the rehabilitation that's happened after that point. Your criticisms of the media are fair, absolutely fair. No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> David, no, they're David, not don't at all. Don't touch us. Yeah, we, we have to be careful because we definitely fall into the, you know, the demonization game and we need to be careful of that. All of us do. I want to, I want to shift gears for a minute. Uh, I think, I'm not sure this is exactly under your purview, but at the very least, I think you 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 probably are in a position to influence this this uh, conversation um, or this issue, I should say. So, Anthony Hinton, are you familiar with his his name and his case? Yes, I am. Okay, so refresh. Yes, the name is very familiar. Okay, so he was famously. Uh, released from death row due to the efforts of Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative. Yes, I'm very, yes, I know this. It's happened while I was in the legislature, okay. so yes. So uh, Mr. Hinton uh, was, was uh, we believe, was unjustly, of course, incarcerated. And, and we believe right. that the state of Alabama owes him not just release, but owes him, literally owes him money for, you know, restitution. Yeah, wrongful incarceration. Yeah. I was on the commission. So I was as judiciary chairman of the Senate, and it was like my first year in the Senate um, when this happened. And, and they appeared before the wrongful incarceration commission. Here's the, here's the problem with that case. I don't disagree with you. There's no question he was wrongfully incarcerated. What happened in that case, you got to change the law governing uh, compensation for wrongful incarceration. Because here's why. What in that case was there was the legislators at the table were like, yeah, we should we should do this. And I forgot the number. You know, they have to estimate a number as to what you lost as a result of incarceration. And that's the money you get. The law says you have to have been determined to have been found not guilty. What the when they threw his case out and, and he was released from death row was. It wasn't that he was not guilty. It was there was a piece of evidence in there. And I'm remembering the lawyers telling us this because I didn't know this. 
they said there's a piece of evidence in there. They said that evidence was not admissible. You've got to retry the case. And when they said that, the lawyers for finance said, whoa, so he's not guilty. They go, no, he's not. It's not that he's not guilty. It's that you got to throw that piece of evidence out. And now you retry the case with that. My thought always was, is, well, that means he was not guilty until proven guilty. Said, so, no, that's not what the court said. It's a, it's a weird, Anthony Henson's case is a weird tick. And it had to do with the gun. It was something about the, something to do with the gun could not have fired X amount of ammunition or the bullets were wrong or something. Hmm. And the, the, the Senate back prosecution said, we can retry the case because there's some of this evidence and the witnesses are gone. So we're just going to drop it. I agree with you, David. I do think that, and I talked to Chris England about this. You need to clarify that law a little bit more, not much, but it needs to be clarified. And I think you're not going to have a legislator that votes against giving him the compensation he feels like he deserves. But there was something in that statute. They told us you can't do what you're wanting to do here. So yeah, I, yeah, I remember Paul. It was uh, Paul Busman that was really Paul Busman Coleman pushed for it. Yeah. yeah, it was a big yeah. for Paul. And and I don't think there was a dis- I don't think that was. It's not the issue of yeah. I think he definitely. It's a terrible story. It was something the way our law was written on wrongful comp- uh, wrongful incarceration compensation that screwed it up. And, and it was it was a bizarre. They have to deal. Over, they have to overturn the verdict or send it back, and the verdict has to be they have to issue a new verdict of of not yeah, guilty. Yeah, in the case. Of not guilty. Yeah. It was a strange. Yeah. It was a strange quirk in the law. But yeah. I, I've actually spoken to Mr. Henson's family on this. So I, I, I yes, I I don't think you're wrong, David. I think you just got to tweak that part of the law. Yeah, I, the and and also it seems to me that another um, problem with the way that this has been handled is that the state of Alabama actually declined to retry the case. And yeah, and that's what I thought. So when I heard that, I thought, well, that means he's not, you know, if, if I'm not retrying the case, then I can't be in limbo the rest of my life. Either I'm guilty or not guilty. I can't be, you know, what is it? So I thought that same thing, David, that was, and it wasn't the AG, by the way, it was the AG weighed in as they always do, but it was something, it was something, it was, I remember correct. And it was like 2012, the finance department's attorney said, nope, the way this is written. And Othney Latham, who is the head of legislative services, he's the most nonpartisan attorney in the legislature told us, Hey, no, don't, you can't do what you're trying to do. You've got to change the statute. And I don't think it's a big change, but yeah. Well, from the position in which you sit, do you think you are able to lend some weight and some help to that effort? Yeah, I mean, I have, honestly, when I, when we get off this podcast, David, I'm going to meet with some legislators now on some policy issues. I am always willing if asked to do that now what i what i will not do and i'm trying to be very cognizant of my new job i don't go and start lobbying a lot of issues outside of my agency when not asked but if asked by my former colleagues i'm always more than willing to weigh in on that i'm just i'm very cognizant and not getting involved in issues that i don't directly have jurisdiction over because then all of a sudden you become that guy i was talking about earlier making fun of saying well isn't your job to do this why are you over here doing this game so I'm very cognizant on the professional side of that. But no, I get asked from time to time about these issues. And if asked, I, I'm very free to say, this is kind of how I would try to fix it if I were in your shoes. Well, that's, uh, listen, I know that that's difficult. 
because I've had conversations with you uh, about a variety of different <laughs> topics, and so I know that it's uh, you're, you're like me. You don't, you know, you see something that you don't like, and you you do it. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you try to try to affect it in some way, and so. But listen, I we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. You got uh, you got your problems and all those other problems you're trying to solve out there because you don't have anything to do in your you know in your job. Uh, it's a great so, job. Um, it's fun. I, I really I mean this. And the governor asked me this a couple of weeks ago. I said I I really am having a lot of fun. I get to do criminal justice twenty four seven, and mm-hmm. I know it's unpopular sometimes. And sometimes I make both sides mad. Uh, but I will tell you, I have a lot of fun doing this and I'm going to continue having fun doing it. So I asked what it's all about. Yeah. Well, listen, I, you know, you're doing a great job. Uh, and, and, and I know there's a lot of people, a lot of incarcerated people that appreciate you, uh, that, you know, the job you're doing and that you care. Uh, and I think that's all anybody can ask is to have put somebody in the position that you're in that cares and wants to do a good job at it. Um, and I, I can't wait for you to get over the department of corrections in total, uh, someday soon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, <laughs> And, my uh, wife, my, my wife may tell me if that ever happened. My wife may say she she gonna recall me back. In. She'll be a recall on me. She'll recall my, my position in life. Uh, let's only uh, talk about things like that. Uh, I, I, listen, I understand. I've had a few of those recalls myself. Uh, I, I know how you, I know how those work. I know how that works completely. But hey, man, we do we do appreciate it, Cam, and, and keep yeah, up the good work. Yeah, thanks a lot, there. Cam. Appreciate it. Right. Enjoy it, guys. Have a you good too. weekend. Thank you. That is uh, as Cam Ward, uh, director of parties and paroles, man. He, 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 listen, I, me, Cam and I don't agree on, on a lot of things, uh, politically, uh, and David as well, uh, right. you know, and, um, but, um, he is, he's a good dude. He really is. He's a, uh, what you heard there is that's, that's who Cam mm-hmm. is. Uh, you know, he, he, he tries to do what he think is, he thinks is right. Uh, he thinks about it. And this is what I always appreciate uh, from Cam and from people like him. There, there are some other ones that have been in the legislature, Republicans, Democrats, both, is that if he does something and votes a certain way, he can tell you why he mm-hmm. did that. And he can explain it to you and explain what his thinking is. And it's not some nonsense. He's gone out and actually done the work to look at it. And he may believe differently than I do about a, a topic or about an issue or whatever, but he can explain his reasonings why. And that's all you can ever ask of somebody. Yeah. In, in and and I, I agree with that. You know who I had that relationship with when he was in office? Governor Bob Riley. Governor Rowley and I sat down once uh, when I was on the editorial board of the Huntsville Times, and we had a one-on-one conversation on the record about the death penalty. And And I had to tell him, after we finished, I said, you know what, Governor? I don't agree with you anymore now than I did when we first started that con- this conversation, but I understand you a lot better now. And, and, uh, you know, I think that on that issue, you know, there's just no way we were 10,000 miles apart and nothing Mm -hmm. he said changed my mind, but I do believe that he truly believed what he said and he had a logic for it, even though I didn't agree with that logic. I get that. I I once had, I once had a, a conversation with Bob Riley about his dealings with the Russian mafia. Oh, well, that story trumps mine. You got to share that now that you dropped that bomb on us. What was that about? Uh, I wrote about it. I Did you? It. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice long story about Alabama's history of gaming um, and uh, his, his uh, how at one point um, 
some of the players in that got sucked into a deal with the Russian mafia uh, about a lottery that was going to take place in, in Russia. Um, and Bob Riley and Rob Riley, his son, were, were part of that. And Milton McGregor was, was part of that and, and some others. And so, yeah, it's uh, listen, if you, uh, you can Google it up. Uh, it's called, uh, it was when, when I was with the advertiser, um, uh, the history of gambling in Alabama, uh, something, a, a, a game of political intrigue uh, or something so, along, along those lines. It's like, it's like seven parts. Uh, so it's a, it's a lengthy oh, wow. thing. It traces, it traces back. It's not just about that. Now it's a, this is about how, how we came to be in this position that we're in with, with gaming in this state. Um, um, and it's, um, you know, that starts with the dog tracks in the seventies and, and traces McGregor's, uh, path and, and how he and Bob Riley became, you know, enemies, uh, feuding back and forth. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting little, little look at things. I think, I mean, that, you know, uh, people seem to enjoy it, uh, but it's, uh, uh, it was, it's, it's pretty wild, man. It's pretty wild. If, if it was, I mean, there are stories in the Miami Herald about the whole, uh, the, the Alabama getting this dog track at, at Victory Land and how there was going to be, uh, there, a new airstrip put in so they could dump the marijuana bales, uh, over beside the, <laughs> beside Whoa. the track. And, uh, yeah, no, this is, it was, it was, it was crazy, man. You just have to go read yeah, it. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to try first yeah. just Googling Bob Rowley and the Russian mafia and see what comes up. Yeah, see if it's in there because it it leads uh, you know the the lead off of the of the story. It, it leads off with them, me having this conversation about uh, it with him and, and Rob Riley at their offices in Birmingham, mm. and um, so yeah, it was a uh, interesting, interesting little piece. All right, all right. Hey, we'll slide out of here. We'll come back and we'll talk about uh, Southern isolationism and, uh, uh, and then you know give you a right wing nut and all the good stuff. Uh, back in a minute, Alabama politics this week. Hi, this is David Person with Alabama Politics This Week. You know, Josh and I have a lot of fun doing this podcast, and we also try to keep it very informational with newsmaker interviews, and and we try to do our research, too, before we get on and pontificate. I hope that you find the podcast informative and entertaining. So if you do, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to rate us, subscribe to us, and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is you're using to listen to us. Please do that. That will help us to move up in the rankings and also to uh, get more people to tune in. So if you're a fan of Alabama politics this week, I hope you'll do that for us. Thanks. All righty, welcome back, Alabama politics this week. Josh Moon, David Person. That was uh, I really like Cam. Uh, it was a good conversation, and uh, it was uh, really appreciate him coming on and, and doing that with us. Uh, um, we we would we were talking before though before we came he came on about the the column that I wrote about the Andy Griffith show and and the term that I used in there Southern isolationism, um, and to kind of explain it more uh than than i did in the in the column it, you know i it seems to me having lived here all my life it, that a lot of times we have become so accepting of things that are wrong and and believing things that are wrong 
that even when we are showed that they, those things are, are wrong and clearly are wrong, instead of saying, eh, well, that's true. Uh, yeah, I'm going to change my thinking on that. We, a lot of people retreat back and kind of circle the wagons and just say, leave me the hell alone and let me believe whatever I want to believe, you yeah. know? Uh, and I think that has uh, caused us the issues that we have with race uh, and with class uh, and with the vaccine and with the COVID itself uh, with, with, and with a number of other issues around uh, that, that have caused these problems because, I, and I think some of it may be attributable to what you were talking about earlier in the way people view Southerners a lot of times, uh, in that they, they have been rightfully criticized so much that they have banded together to say, you know, what the hell with y'all? We're just not going to listen to anything you have to say. Uh, and we're going to believe whatever we want to believe. And you can't make us believe otherwise. And it's our Southern heritage to believe this dumb shit that we believe. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, and so I think that's how we kind of got to this deal with, with Mayberry is they, these people, you know, they want to believe that at one point there was this white utopia out there and America was this grand place where everybody loved each other and you helped your neighbor and, uh, no one locked their doors because there was zero crime. And, and it, you know, it never, ever happened, never occurred. Uh, and there were horrible things happening at the same time this show was being filmed and aired. Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, assuming we're, you're in North Carolina, uh, just a few hundred miles from where you are. There were bombing buses and stuff, man, uh, you know, uh, because black people and white people had the nerve to ride together on them. Um, and that's what I'm talking about, though, is they, they've just isolated themselves. Right. So the show, I think, actually was filmed at least the in the black and oh. white years. I think it was filmed in Hollywood, but the setting oh, yes. for the show was... Yeah, oh, oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It, was, yeah. Oh, it was at Paramount Studios. I was right. like, yeah, I, I right. mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I know where... I know I, 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 I could have gone one time, but I didn't uh, when yeah. I was out there. When I was out, not not while the show was being filmed, of course. I'm not that old. No, uh, you're but, not. You know, yeah. yeah. But there's a, there, they have some, <laughs> some old sets and things out there. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you're right. The, the the setting for the fictional town was was right up against where real life hell was going on for a lot of black people. Mm-hmm. And um, this this um, this southern isolationism, <clears throat> I think, also uh, has an interesting parallel to the what I call Alabama's real. Uh, religion, which is not yeah. the Baptist church, but college football. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and I say that because as one, as one lifelong Southerner uh, who uh, was white and conservative and who was raised by people who were, I believe, conservative and white also said to me once, uh, said to me, he said, uh, he said the reason that college football means so much to us is because we didn't have anything else. Oh, that's we didn't have anything else to be proud of. We didn't have any other. Re- and it goes back to what you were just saying, Josh. You know, feeling 
you know, lost the Civil War, uh, <laughs> go through all the, you know, this horrendous stuff uh, with the, the, the pushback against Jim Crow, looked down on by the nation. Well, the one thing that, that folks felt they had that they could be proud of and that showed that they excelled in something was college mm-hmm. football. Yep. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. So listen, I, you know, my, um, my, you know, my dad w- would say that when I was growing up, uh, you know, we talk about why my college football here was so, so popular and, and why, you know, he and a lot of his family members were Alabama fans. And, and, and he would say, hey, you know, listen, that was all we had to be proud of, uh, you know, because he was in the Air Force, lived out in L.A. and uh, Beverly Hills for a long time, uh, uh, and, you know, during that time. And uh, but, but, you know, he. So he had this understanding uh, that I, I think uh, maybe a lot of people didn't, uh, you know, perspective anyways from from outside of this region uh, that that would you know this this is what we had you know we when you talked about Alabama in a positive light in that time uh, when you were that guy in the Air Force in California uh, you talked about Alabama football you know and because there wasn't anything what the hell are you going to talk about you know George Wallace you know what you, you know what I mean you what are you going to you going to tell people about um and yeah. uh so so yeah that you're you're a, you're dead on it is that's what we had to be proud of at that point and and it um it, it's it's carried forward uh to today um you know Alabama's got a great team got a great coach uh who I wish would do more social uh issue take up more social issues because he's just absolutely fantastic at it, uh, at talking yeah, about it. And I mean, there, there are clips of, of Nick Saban talking about social problems and issues and things, uh, out there during press conferences that, I, I mean, you don't hear anybody talk with a level of authority and with a level of, uh, of intellect and with a level of compassion in a lot of cases, when he talks about kids who get in trouble and where, where, are, where you want them to be, where you want them to be, you know, you want them to be on the street. You don't want them to be here graduate. Uh, you know, and given and given examples of players that have come before that he gave second chances and third chances to uh, that went on to be great, you know, husbands and fathers and business owners and, and NFL players. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so but well, the, the point to all of this is, of course, is that, yeah, that's that's what we have. And, and we didn't have much else. And, and I think that contributed to the isolationism as well. Yeah, no doubt. Now, I'm not a Alabama football fan, but I am a Nick Saban fan for the very reasons that you talked about. I think he is, he's been incredible. I mean, far exceeded any expectations I ever had uh, of an Alabama football coach in terms of his positions on social justice and how far he's gone with it. I mean, that guy actually marched with his own player. Yeah. And I know that he did that. He did that to the disgust, chagrin, and anger of a lot of his ver- of a lot of his fans, a lot of the fans yeah. of the football fan. Yeah, no, hundred percent. But you know, I of course hate him, um, passionately hate him. Uh, you hate him, so, or you hate? Oh, oh, I hate him. I hate him and the football team and everything, everything with crimson and an elephant on it and that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> nonsense i hate all of it uh and uh you know and so but that's just me i'm an auburn fan and so uh, they uh. must be hated and then they will be hated until he <laughs> takes that ridiculous crimson off uh and and you know joins up with with the good side uh then he will be the evil empire and darth vader and that's i'm not gonna root for darth vader i'm just not I hear you. I hear uh even you. as much as i respect his position on things and yeah. and listen I, i've had some my problems with nick saban in the past uh, in the way he's handled media 
media at times and spoken sure. to other grown sure. adults. Sure. Uh, you know, I think he has belittled a lot of uh, of undeserving uh, professional grown-ups who were just doing their job sure. uh, there. I think I'll say this too: uh, uh, criticize one side, I'll criticize the other. I think sometimes, and I have criticized him unfairly in the past as well. And some people have nitpicked and criticized things that that he didn't deserve at times. And but I'll also say that the two times that I have called Nick Saban and spoken to him on the phone, he's been nothing but nice and cordial uh, to me, and and we had great conversations. And mm. um, and. Uh, Terry Saban, who I've spoken to twice uh, officially and then stood at the back of many press conferences uh, with at, at, while on the road. Uh, she, she was, she's great. She, she is a, a, a truly great person. Um, and, uh, but, you know, listen, I, I don't know how we got off on Alabama football so deeply other than to say, that <laughs> well, because awful. of the, hey, well, because really of awful. the whole, you know, yeah, they're terrible. They're, they're, che- they're cheating. They're cheaters. They're, they're cheaters. cheaters too. They're oh, cheaters. Okay. All right. Yes. We well, all I, know they're cheating. Yeah. I. You know, since you're you you're the fan, I'm not a fan of of college football. So yeah. you know, whatever you, just you say. Take my word for it. They're cheating. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's how it gets ahead. <laughs> That's how it gets ahead, man. That's all I know. That's all I know. <laughs> Got all those cheaters in line over there. Um. Uh, but yeah, it's you know. So that's that's what I think is. Yeah, Southern isolationism is uh, so, is, a, is a problem. So before we, yeah, we both agree on that. So before we we switch topics, what do you think is the solution as a as a lifelong Southerner with Southern roots? What's the solution? Um, you know, man, I I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you reach a lot of people that, that seclude themselves uh, the way so many have now secluded themselves um, in which they, they only talk to like-minded people on, on social media. They only uh, receive news and, um, and information from sources that tell them what they want to hear and, 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 you know, reconfirm what they want to believe or what they already believe about every issue and every topic, no matter how wrong they might be about it. Uh, I mean, literally in that piece, literally now, in that piece from Ted Koppel that we talked about, uh, there was a guy on there saying that there was footage of, of Black Lives Matter, uh, truckloads of people from Black Lives Matter infiltrating uh, the Capitol on January the 6th, and it was all staged, and that's what happened, was those people were the ones who did it. I, I don't know how you, how you reach those people. And listen, because that, that guy's not alone, all right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, when they said that, there were other people on that trolley nodding their head uh, along with that. And, and when you said that they're the enemy, the press is the enemy of the people, and they were like, yes, sir, we believe it, and Trump was a great man. I, you know, I, I can't. I don't know who it was who said it, but it's. Uh, they said it's a lot easier to to fool a man than to convince a man he's been fooled, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and I I think that that is that's true, and that plays a big part of this. Um, and again, I go back to the Andy Griffith show and how many episodes were built around this idea of people falling for con men because they told them something they wanted to hear. You know how they where they got out of out of sorts because you know Barney believe you know believe, believe in the lies of you know being a great you know cop or whatever and it just you know that that was all the lesson in this and somehow or another those lessons just went right over everybody's head uh, and it just I don't I to, so to answer your question I don't know man I don't I don't know what to what to say to people anymore that that so 
casually and easily move against their own self-interests, whether it be in voting or in how they conduct their lives or in what they I mean, how else can you explain a group of people who are who would rather take and I'm not even talking I'm not even going to say they're taking horse dewormer, although, you know, that's what some people have taken. But regardless of whether it's horse dewormer or or just, you know, whatever treatment, how I don't know what to say to a group of people who would bypass a free vaccine that has been proven effective and been given out billions of times now safely. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you how do you reach people who who bypass that and, and instead choose these other options later after they already are sick? And and they're going for you know and they're fighting for those things. I, what do you, I don't. What do you say? I mean, they're you're killing yourself, and and yeah. you see it. You every day you see your friends and your family and everybody dying all around you, and you just are like, I, what's happening? And, and you know what? What else is is sad? And this is, it's sad, but it's a really, I think, brazen manifestation of just straight up evil. Is you have. You have politicians that play on that, you know, like that, uh, like that uh, incredibly, I think, evil DeSantos in Florida, the governor, yeah. or DeSantis, I think is his name, uh, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis in Florida. That I like DeSantos. That sounds is it Santos? Evil. No, I said I like DeSantos. Oh. Uh, it sounds more evil. Oh. Sounds like he would be a villain in a movie. <laughs> DeSantos. Yeah. Oh, DeSantos. DeSantos. <laughs> That guy is evil, in my opinion, you know, and, yeah. and now he's he's doubling down by and this to me is the height of not just evil, but cynicism. He's now hired as the I think they're calling him <laughs> the Surgeon General of Florida, uh-huh. a black anti-vaxxer and an anti-mask uh, doctor, medical doctor. Yeah. I mean, that's just the height of, of cynicism, you know, to me, that, that you not only get somebody and put them in that position with those points of view, but that he would be a black guy. More people have died in Florida from COVID than died in Vietnam. He, he really literally, he literally gives a damn about his, his concern. No, he doesn't care. He, he he's he's care dug about. in on this, yeah. and, and he he's wrong. Yeah. He's wrong. He's flat wrong about all of it. He's been flat wrong about all of it. Um, and and his state has suffered because of his stupidity. And he doesn't uh, care. His, he can care less. Yeah, and he doesn't care. And his stubbornness. And, and it's you're right. It's and you're and you're right about the overall topic or about the overall uh, picture of people here and in politicians who have taken this easy road. And we we talked about this actually on the on the TV show The V, uh, uh, which airs on Sunday mornings. Check your local listing. Uh, but it's um, how easy. And how much difference would it have made if Republican politicians from the very start of this had simply said to people, trust your doctors, trust the scientists, I'm going to take a vaccine, I'm going to wear a mask when they tell me to wear a mask, let's do what it takes here and get this over with and we're not going to politicize this thing. How, what, how many lives would be saved? I, I, you've got to think it's in the end of the tens of thousands at this Easily. point. Um, of people who would have been saved if all of our politicians had taken that tack 
and stopped placating these morons out here because and they've been pandering to people for easy votes by telling them that we're we're protecting your freedoms you know and uh, and and that that sort of nonsense um i, I mean it just it, it'll make you sick to sit there and think about it really it does it, it makes you sick to think about the number of people that whose lives have uh, I mean, just think about the number of people who you hear uh, of dying who were uh, on the radio talking, yeah. you know, and were big anti-vax people or, or big, you know, whatever, COVID deniers. You know, how many of those? I mean, 15 or more now that we're, we, we've seen all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of these, these folks that have left behind children and families and, you know, and uh, there was a story of a mother the other day uh, who... You know, she, she's never been able, she's, she's gonna, basically probably going to die. And she's mm-hmm. never been able to hold her newborn baby. And she's got other kids at home. But she was a proud uh, anti-vax person. Uh, yeah, know? it's, um, yeah, and you're right. This, this, um, this Southern isolationism is, is deadly. And that's really yeah. what I think we're saying. You know, it's more now than just being on the wrong side of an issue or, or something like that. Now we're talking about literally it's killing people. It's yeah. killing people. No, it is. It is that. And, and as I, you know, and we're, we're going to do the right wing nut for this week. And it plays right into this. It plays right into this. Uh, these people believe in whatever the hell they want to believe and, and never having to admit that they were wrong or that, uh, that, that something they thought wasn't right or that their favorite candidate lost. Um, and, and because our right wing nut this week is John Merrill, mm-hmm. um, who invited the my pillow guy, Mike Lindell, uh, to sit in at the office and have some Chick-fil-A and go over the voter list, mm-hmm. uh, and which he bought a copy of the voter list from the state and then ran a test quote unquote on it. Uh, and, uh, you know, a week after having this great conversation and Merrill tweeting out photos of the whole a uh, little get together with Lindell there at the table with him talking about Alabama's voting system. Lindell then uh, releases a statement saying that it, his tests have uh, come to find that Al- 100,000 votes in Alabama were switched from Trump to another candidate and that Alabama's voting machines could be accessed by Bluetooth. Uh, to which now Merrill was Merrill, of course, was like horrified. Oh no! What? It was no way. I mean, our machines can't be can't be you know connected by Bluetooth. That's just impossible. And you know, so listen, lay down with deranged dogs. Wake up with derangement problems, my That's man. Right. Uh, That's right. You know. That's but right. But this is. It's all all part of this thing, man. This dude is all over the place. He's all over these conservative news or entertainment sites mm-hmm. uh, out there and and he's you know spilling this nonsense and do you know what to date there has been zero zero evidence despite all of these audits and all of these investigations and all of this shit that they pull they've piled on top of everything there's been zero evidence that there is any election fraud at all and and yet not only does Lindell continue to make that case but so does Trump and Trump even you know, as recently as uh, earlier this week, Trump was uh, attacking Lindsey Graham as well as uh, I think Mike Lee of yeah. Utah because they weren't, they didn't vigorously, uh, you know, try to over participate in his January sixth overturn of the government, and and that uh, Lindsey Graham made some uh, apparently some very critical comments about the fraud uh, claims. I mean. 
But you know what? I think Trump's philosophy is, and Lindell's philosophy by extension is, you know, it doesn't matter that 80% of people think that this is BS. We're just going to keep saying it and keep saying it. They believe that they can speak a victory into reality. And I got to tell you, honestly, honestly, as much as I despise what they're doing, if I were Donald Trump, I would do the exact same thing. I would do the exact same thing. And the reason is because human nature has already proven to us that there is a path forward in terms of his objectives. And his mm-hmm. objectives are, first of all, I think, to monetize, you know, everything that he can. <laughs> In anything that he can, yes. Anything yeah. that he can. Uh-huh. And, and so he's still, uh, apparently, he's still successfully doing that. And he knows also that as long as he can create a chaotic environment, it gives him a shot at escaping uh, consequences. You know, the more chaos he keeps up. And so, you know, from a very Machiavellian, evil, political vantage point, what he's doing, even though it is repulsive at every level, it is actually, I hate to say it, but it's actually sort of smart in an evil, in a very diabolical evil sense. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't know. You know, a lot of times I think people give give Trump credit for things and, and it's really, it's less of a, uh, of a tactical decision on his part and more so just the obvious choice a child would make, you know, it's just, you know, I'm going to keep lying, you know, it's, and it's like the Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it, Uh, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and I I think that's, that's some of this here and, and yeah, I mean, but I think ultimately you're right in, in that this is his pathway uh, to any sort of uh, relevancy again uh, is to just keep spewing the same nonsense and stick with the lie. Um, and, you know, nobody, nobody with any, with a working brain believes this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it just because it's so ridiculous and so absurd now that uh, the only way you could possibly believe it is if you're in that 10% of people in America that have immersed yourself in that bubble uh, where this sort of crap is spewed all the time. If, basically, if you're tuned into Newsmax on a regular basis every day, then uh, you know you probably believe this. But if you're like the 95% of Americans who aren't uh, and who have no idea what Newsmax even is, then you know you don't you you probably believe otherwise and believe that there's so, uh, no no real truth to this stuff. Right. So it's it's not yeah whether it's intelligence or just uh, sort of infantile narcissism. I think. The bottom line is it strategically it's effective and and that's unfortunate that's unfortunate for this country it's unfortunate for the world because there's no good that comes from this and ultimately i think it's still it still provides a platform and and an and an avenue for the disruption of our democracy not just internally but externally you know, yeah. um, and and this is a this is I don't I don't see our nation really ever recovering from the damage that he continues to do, and then he's got these sycophantic uh, Republicans like Steve Marshall who play into this. Even though I think we would both say that 
from what we know of Steve Marshall, he's too smart to believe this crap. He's too smart. I don't believe that he really thinks that he really truly buys in and he and he understands the dilemma that it puts him in when he on the one hand tries to affirm what Trump is saying while on the other hand but saying oh but no not here in Alabama no it doesn't yeah. apply to us you oh know, you're talking just, about, oh, yeah you're talking about Merrill yeah yeah oh I'm okay, sorry I, I said Marshall yeah. I meant Merrill yeah. thank you yeah. thank you I meant Merrill yeah that's why that's why you got the look that, that I gave you there was oh like, my bad yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know why yeah. I confuse those guys all yeah. the time yeah no, well you know basically at this point every Republican's interchangeable um <laughs> but um <laughs> Uh, no, listen. I, I think you're right, um, and and on pretty much everything you said, and it just is. Uh, it's it's disappointing that we're to this level, uh, you know. And I think I'll tell you this. I think a lot of it has to do with with the makeup of the media today as well, uh, mm. because you have so many platforms available for people, and and it is easy in a lot of ways for people to make money. Um, by uh, with with just a, a relatively small number of of viewers and and things every every day. Uh, so you know you t- let's say we're, we're talking about a Newsmax situation and they put this this stuff on on their pages and you know YouTube or Facebook and everything and, and drive the traffic that they're driving and you know you get a few a few thousand ads uh, across those or a few hundred ads across those things and and you're talking about thousands of dollars uh, in a matter of minutes every day. And and it's so it's easy with very little overhead uh, and very little production value uh, to create a very profitable organization that generates a lot of money. And um, and then, you know, you get anger and uh, throw all that in the mix uh, there with a bunch of people who feel like they've been wrong. And now they're loyal to you and they're coming back and they're doing all these things. And so you've got you've got a money machine that's coming out of this. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big problem. And. Uh, and you see the politicians that are trying to capitalize on that stuff as well. And the reason they're able to capitalize on it is the gerrymandering that has gone on in a lot of states, especially in Alabama, where the base vote is really what matters. And so you just have to be as batshit insane as possible mm-hmm. as a right wing Republican and you get to be the, the person in elected office. Um, and so, you know, all that is a recipe for the sort of situation that we've created here. And until we figure out a way to to stop that or put some protections in where it, where it comes to media and other things, we're going to have some, you know, we're going to have this around for a while. Like you said, it, it, we may, yeah. we may never recover, but you know, maybe people would just, it would be nice if the people would just go like watch Ted Lasso or something, you know, and uh, <laughs> you ever watch Ted Lasso? I have. <laughs> yeah. It's a great show, man. It is yeah, it's it's so good. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it makes you feel so good to watch that show. I mean, it just is like, you know, it, it's a, such a cornball sort of thing, yeah. you know, yeah. and then, but at the end of it, you're just like, damn, I feel, you know, that's, that was a, you, you're, you're smiling and you're, you walk away happy from the, <laughs> yeah, from the show. Funny. And, it's pretty yeah, funny. It's a pretty good little show, man. That I guy, I can't remember the lead actor's name, but he's pretty much that character in everything I've ever seen him in. <laughs> I think he's, that, I think he's basically that way in real life. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, <laughs> uh, he's a, uh, He's yeah. uh, he's a, he's he's pretty funny man, and, and yeah. he's that he seems to be you know from all the stories that you hear about him, just a just a super nice guy that that does little things like that you know like uh, calls calls up reporters and you know and all that kind of stuff just you know and, and talks to them about bad situations and stuff. It's just it's uh he's you know I, but it's it's a great show. They won a lot of Emmys 
uh, yeah. Sunday night, and uh, and good for them. Good for them. So yeah. let me just tell you before we get out of here that uh, I posted your column on my Facebook page, and I've got friends uh, outside of Alabama that are that are uh, uh, liking it and that are uh, talking about. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Andy Griffith fans that are outside of Alabama and outside of the South. I even got some folks. Uh, now, some of them have roots in the South, though, I guess, yeah. as I'm looking at some of the names. But, but, uh, but yeah, I think it resonates with a lot of people. Well, good, good. Maybe, uh, maybe people, uh, you know, people will, will, will latch on to it and, and maybe the, the lessons will be uh, a little more apparent uh, than apparently they are to some others. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it'll, it'll stretch that way. And, and we can have Mayberry. All the world can be a Mayberry. But, <laughs> but, but an actual one where people, non-white people actually will be. All right, all right. All right, let's, uh, on that happy note, let's, uh, let's slide ourselves out of here. And then until uh, next week, you guys be safe. Peace.